Welcome to The Republican Professor. Today we have with us a very special guest, Mr. Phil Little. Thanks for being here, Phil. It's great to be here with you. Phil, it's been a long time since I've seen you. You know, uh, and my daughter Nicolette uh, said to tell you hello, and she was the reason that we're connected. And she had said that, it reminded me, that Dad, that was the only class I made sure I showed up on every day, every time. The others were so leftist and out there that she got in arguments with them, so sometimes she just wouldn't even go. But she was so impressed and learned so much from your class, and so thank you so much. We need more of that in our schools today. Well, thank you very much for that. And I have, I I don't remember very many students from Pierce College uh, 2009, which is the first year I taught there. Um, but I do remember your daughter and I think she would, did she ever go by Nikki by chance? Yes. Oh, yep, okay. She was Nikki. That's how I, that's how she introduced herself to me. And I think she would write her name different ways on, on quizzes and stuff like that. But, uh, my impressions of her were that she was uh she was one of the younger students uh at Pierce College in Woodland Hills but she seemed to have her stuff together uh more than than most students and by that i mean she seemed to have a sense of who she was and where she was going and uh i always thought of her as a, a good student like a disciplined student yeah. she was one of my favorites there so yeah. um well and then she has done exceptional in her career in the world now what oh, she's good. doing is exciting yeah. that's awesome i'm really glad to hear that that's yeah. wonderful to hear uh i had you come speak to my pepperdine university course uh that i developed for the business department and business ethics and uh, that was a joy you were one of the popular speakers there so, um, well, you know, I, I read your finally read your all your bio and all your credentials. And I think if I'd have known them then, I'd have probably been so intimidated. I don't know where I would come <laughs> or not, but very impressive background. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, at that time, you gave me a book, Hostile Intent, and I flipped through it. And I, I never really started reading it until recently. I, I went through a move and I was going through some old books and it was one of those books that you I had on my bookshelf for a long time. And, and like so many books, you know, you just get used to seeing it there. And well, through the move, I was like, wait, I never read this thing all the way through. I read parts of it. So I, I actually sat down Phil about a month ago and I started reading it and I was so, so pleasantly surprised by it. I, I mean, it just, it was a real, it's a great read. It's called Hostile Intent by Phil Thank Little, uh, Broadman and Holdman Publishers. And um, I think one of the reasons I was able to enjoy it is just because I've I've had an interest in this topic for a long time. I I um uh and you approach it from an explicitly uh biblical worldview and i appreciated that part of it and you also narrate parts of los angeles and i know parts of los angeles very well because uh, as a professor i was always running around between pepperdine and loyola marymount and pierce right. and so you're talking about the san fernando valley and w at one point you talk about following uh 
a suspect uh, right. down the 405 and she gets off on the 90. And I was like, oh, I know exactly, you know, and, and you talk about Marina Del Rey and she gets on Mindanao and then goes on Admiralty yep. Way. And I know exactly that whole area because I that that was the shortcut I used from Loyola Marymount to Pepperdine. I would right. uh, I would bypass uh, Lincoln going north and I would uh, do Washington and then I would do Venice, go through Venice to uh, Santa right. Monica and then cut down PCH up and up. But uh, wow, what a career you've had. Uh, it's been interesting. <laughs> and uh, you never thought, I never thought a farm boy from Missouri would wind up in, uh, you know, doing the things I've done and the opportunities I've had. But that's the way God works. Gosh, you, you look the same, too, as 2009. You look oh my like God. really young. <laughs> To me, you look uh, young and sound young. Yeah, I sometimes I look in the mirror and I think, "What? Who is that in the mirror?" You know. So, but thank you for that. I appreciate that. But yeah, I'm just being honest. Yeah. So, I don't know how much you want to share about your uh, journey, but um, it seems like from the book you got interest, you got started in your your private investigation business and counterterrorism work uh, in the private sphere. You got it. You got into that in the '70s. And right. Lebanon well, and Israel had a lot to do with that. So, yeah, I came out of uh, the Air Force in uh, I wound up in California. Uh, we were ferrying jets over to uh, Vietnam and I uh, decided to get out. And so I stayed there. I was on the sheriff's department for a while and and did different things and got interested in law enforcement and and that kind of work. But I wanted to be the sheriff or the chief. And I knew that was going to take some time. So. I was attracted to the private sector because that gave me more uh, opportunities and I could be the boss and no politics. And so that's what led me um, into just starting a small private detective agency and moved down from Victorville to Los Angeles and was building the business. And I was uh, actually, it was through the church I was involved there, First Baptist Van Nuys at that time when Dr. Fickett was there that it introduced me to several different people and so the career started. And then, um, oh, in early uh, or late 1976, I was at a full gospel businessmen's uh, uh, national convention out in uh, Anaheim. And a man came and sat down beside me and he was the uh, founder, or not the founder, he had taken over West Coast Detectives in 19, uh, around the 50, when the, uh, the founder had passed away. And uh, he was older and he looked at me and said, hey, after we talked for a while, why don't you take over my agency? And, you know, six, it, it didn't happen. It didn't look like. But about six months later, he gave me the call and said, hey, let's do this. So wow. in February of 77, I took over West Coast Detectives and it was a national agency at that time. And that started my leap forward. And I was on the board of Hyatt Venture Ministries. And that's what led me into Israel. And of course, mm -hmm. I was interested in intelligence gathering and counterterrorism. I'd had some experience in that, but I was exposed when we went up to Lebanon and uh, Prime Minister Begin had challenged us. And he was adamant. He said, you Christians in the, uh, the United States and Canada have been sitting silent. And the only one helping the uh, Christians of Southern Lebanon is the Jews. And so we went up and, and I, I talk about that in the first chapter of how we got involved. And it, you know, we were amateurs. 
we weren't um, professionals because the professionals all kept uh, turning down. They'd go there and say, oh, this is a war zone. I'm not going back. And But we didn't have sense enough to know we couldn't do it. And George Otis was a was a charger, you know. He didn't, he, he just said, we're going to do this. And we found a way. So that, and I saw, I was right in the middle of terrorism. And I was talking yeah. to the military and intelligence folks, and they would tell me what was going on in the terrorist training camps when we, we had Americans and then people from all over the world that were being trained in those camps. And so I realized that terrorism wasn't a Middle East situation. It wasn't just about a Palestinian homeland. They had a much bigger goal than that. Yeah. I mean, you've been shot at. I mean, some of the, the stories you talk yes. about, like you're 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 going directly into harm's way. And you you talk about that in the book. Uh you talk about smuggling things in. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's it was it yeah. 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 <laughs> Those, I think so. those nervous moments, you know, and we yeah. get nervous over things. Uh, obviously, I would have had a way out, I think, you know, the military would have come to my aid. Yeah. But we didn't want to have to do that. So, yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, as I'm, right, I'm reading through this, I'm constantly amazed at your ability with people. Because I just feel like that skill right there mm. is the secret to your success. Because you're always talking about yes. the contacts you have everywhere. <laughs> I mean, you're yes. you're like going into Mexico. You know people in Mexico. You know high level people in in England and Germany, um, in in Israel. You know, um, how do you develop all those contacts? How do you? How do you have all these people that are willing to work with you? What's well, one, I, I like people. I was raised that way and I enjoy people. Um, I came yeah. from a, a family of servants' hearts. My grandfather, great grandfather, and father were all servants and uh, had that servant heart and very humble men. And I, I, um, and it was favored by God. You know, I uh, taken over West Coast Detectives. I didn't have the money. I didn't have the ability. And he sold it to me for five cents on the dollar and no payments for the first three years. Hmm. And it was one thing after another, that favor came. And a lot of my contact, well, my contacts started in uh, in Israel and Lebanon through being on the board of Hyatt Venture, going there. And George Otis had that, that entree to the leaders because he had taken so many people there and he was known as a friend of Israel. So that gave me by being with him and on his board, that gave me some credibility. And I, I just like people. And I, I treat people like I wanted to be treated, no matter where I'm at in the world. And so that happened there in, um, in southern Lebanon and Israel because we had the same uh, goals as Israel had, and that was to help the people of southern Lebanon. And the more we helped there, the more it helped Israel. Mm -hmm. So when we started to build the radio station, the uh, religious um, sector in Israel, oh, they they had a fit. And and Prime Minister fi uh, Begin finally told them, he said, be silent. This is in Israel's best interest that this station get built. And uh, so that gave us a, you know, a, a leg up there. But and, and also in, in Europe, it started with a family friend. I had a um, through family relationships and connections so i had a friend that was on the um, one of the 
the the commanders at uh, French National Police, and then uh, he introduced me to people. He would make a phone call to Scotland Yard or to French National Police, or and then we were in a trip in in Germany prior to the Olympics. A group of police people and us were uh, going to crisscross uh, Europe to find out what happened in the Munich. Uh, games disaster and try to make sure that didn't happen in the United States. So I was introduced yeah. there to GSG nine. So it's just been those steps of favor by God right. and seeing open doors and, and treating people right. I mean, whether I, I worked a lot of cases at the South Los Angeles in my early days where I would be the only white guy in, in these places, but mm -hmm. you know, I never had any problem because I just treated the people like I was in Beverly Hills and it, it, it worked. Yeah. Well, that seems to be the secret of your success. I, I I'm just like uh, this one part where the, the, the uh, part where you're trailing Renee, the, the yes. Iranian uh, arms dealer from London. Yep. Uh, you have to have so many different things in place just to make sure you get on the right plane. Cause she would switch planes back then. I guess you could just walk off a plane and go onto another plane. Um, right. I guess you can't do that now, but no, um, we'll get to we'll get to the Patriot Act and and the response to nine eleven. But let's build up to nine eleven. You, but you know, with the Renee story, I I was impressed by the that was originally a Saudi royal. Member, no, it wasn't Saudi. It was a, it was another country. I won't mention, but it was oh, another okay. country there nearby. <laughs> nearby, okay. Yeah. So it was was it a royal? Member it was of the a king. Royal... It was a. It was a. Yeah. It was the the head guy, okay. and he had had some. Uh, I never did really know how the connection started between uh, Renee, but she was a beautiful woman, very sexy, very seductive. So somehow she got connected to him, and then after a while they separated. They didn't have connection, and then she told him that oh she'd had a son by him. So right. that's how it all started, and. Um, and the he was trying was to try to determine. He was trying to check and see if that was really true. And he hired you to That's do right. that. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. And he wanted us to bring the son to him if that was the case. <laughs> wow. So yeah. that what, what what impressed me was you mentioned the wire transfer. You mentioned, yeah, so we, we needed twenty five thousand to get started on retainer. And then as I'm what I'm listening to your story, I'm like how are you making this work on 25,000? Because you have, oh, people we did. It was around. a lot more. It was, it was a lot more than that. Yeah. So yeah. you're bill, you're billing him at the same, uh, along the way for expenses. Oh, yes. Them? Okay. Oh, yeah. It, it was a, uh, in our field, we work on a retainer and we bill out that retainer and then we get another one by the time that, that ends. And in this case, the man was a close friend. He was a very, he was very involved and he was actually part of uh, Reagan's, uh, uh, inner cabinet and, and very, um, very reputable guy, great friend. He was born in Palestine and he was an amazing man. And he became a close friend and we worked on a lot of things together. He had started his father uh, from, uh, was born in Bethlehem and started taking tours to Saudi Arabia. And in that he met King Fahd and King Fahd took a liking to him and propelled him into this gigantic, um, well, they were in the arms and everything else, uh, military and all kinds of equipment. So Sam and then came to the States and went to um, college here and then stayed here, found the Lord, and was just a great, uh, a great man, a great friend.
Now, this is the man who hired you, or the man that contacted you. He was a team? conduit. Yes, he okay. he was gotcha. a conduit uh, yeah. because he knew all the royalty uh, members. Oh, okay. He he was a conduit to us to, to yeah. have the case. So that that story, when uh, for those of you who are um, listening, get the book uh, "Hostile Intent." That that story is in in the book, and it's it's quite a an interesting linchpin in the story because you're initially following her and trying to find out about her. There's no records of the person under her name. And so you finally identify the woman under, she's using a false name and you, you're, you find right. the, the, the false name in the trash. So she's using right. it uh, for mail and right. stuff. And this is in London. And so you're working in a foreign country and you're, you're operating basically out of a hotel, uh, and you have a base there? You have some kind of office yes. there in London? Yeah. We had people from Scotland Yard that worked for us um, uh, off-duty and and someone they retired. So we had a base there, and okay. then we would augment that. We had SAS guys with weapons and also when we needed weapons uh, guys, you know, we had that ability. And that's the way it was in every uh, the countries gotcha. I set up where I had a, a, a one or two people that were all either their counterterrorism or intelligence people. And then they would staff it with uh, people when we needed a for a particular type of case. So they fed the intelligence in on a constant basis. And then if we had a case going into that country, then we would lay it out, map it out, and and do the action plan. There's so many pieces going. At, now, what you end up finding out is that the kids' story is not true, but that something else more sinister is true, and that is that she's involved in uh arms dealing with iran right probably uh, a terrorist organizer is that right yeah this lady she was a she was an agent she was an agent okay. for Iran. that's and what you she, actually she had was drinks with her undercover at a you oh, had yeah. a club you you were oh, having yeah. drinks with her at like 2 2 a.m or whatever well yeah what happened with that was she went out to all these uh, at that day and i guess it probably is the all night clubs in in um yeah. uh, london wherever were and they would, you know, not get going till midnight. They would yeah. be open till daylight. And she went there a lot. So as it worked out, wow. again, favor. And uh, I, you know, posed as the uh, the business guy, investor uh, yeah. from America, just started doing some stuff. So it attracted her interest. And yeah, we spent um, two or three hours there, danced together. And she was, uh, and then she made the comment, well, let's get together again. And yeah. Uh, yeah. my guys kept telling me, uh, and this woman was smart, you know, yeah. actually we determined that she was planning stuff in the trash. Uh, because what yeah. happened was, yeah. uh, I, I didn't go into that in the, in the, in the book, I don't think, but you hinted at um, it. You hinted at it. Yeah. We, yeah, we had a, uh, former Scotland Yard guy that had a, um, cleaning service, uh, maid service and all that. And he, it turned out he was handling her house. He had, uh, maids and, cleaners and butt was all in her house. So he, we got an agent planted as an employee in the house. And that's how we learned a lot of the intelligence and up-to-date stuff of what she was doing. That's how we learned she was planting stuff in the trash because this agent had overheard and she was laughing about it because before we got involved, we found out that uh, somebody else, they had tried to use somebody else who were amateurs apparently because they blew their cover and she was laughing about that. 
and that uh, you know she uh, oh. exposed them. And but she, and so we knew that when she there was something in the trash about her trip, we could fear that maybe that was a red herring. Yeah. So we had to prepare. And of course, like you say, that day uh, we had a lot of cash. People would have a bag with them if they had to get on a plane. You know, like followed her in a car and get out of their car and go there. They could. Well, we couldn't do that yeah. now. So, yeah. you know, it'd be much more difficult, but that right. was what was happening a lot. You just had to have a lot of people in the right places, ready to go, ready for any contingency that might, you know, come up. So the issue of trust is kind of important because, uh, to, to not, uh, to understate it, uh, you have all these people that are ready to go at a moment's notice working for you. And you have to trust them. Like, how do you, how do you trust all those people? Did you know all these people personally? Had you met them all or had you vetted them all? Yeah, we, everybody that worked for us, uh, we vetted uh, heavily, but we started with the right people. Because everybody we had on those staffs was already with their governments or had been. Okay. And they were vetted uh, intensely. Some of them still had their top secret clearances if they were retired. Uh, a lot of the SAS guys were active guys. And so, and then our he man in, um, in Scotland Yard, he actually, he was a top criminologist in Europe. He ran the black museum. Um, and it's not really known a lot. It's used just for law enforcement. And, but the black museum was set up in, in London at Scotland Yard. And it has all the cases, all the back Jack the Rippers there, all the unsolved cases that wow. were not solved were put in there. And Bill's Waddell's his, uh, his uh, uh, work was try to solve those cases, try to to reopen them. So it's a fascinating uh, museum. It's a it's a member. You have to know somebody to get in, but it's fascinating uh, museum. So Bill knew everybody, so he would vet, and we made sure that our people were were uh, righteous and right and upright, standing and honest in ever in every way. And we never ever had an issue. I never ever had an issue in any country of the world with any people that we had. I had some in America occasionally, but <laughs> never there. That's interesting. What kind of uh, issues would you have with people in America by contrast? Uh, well, sometimes they would try to steal the client from you, uh, you know, mm -hmm. thinking that they got smarter and they mm -hmm. would, or, or they weren't honest. They would, they would just lie and say they did something and they didn't, or when mm -hmm. something would happen, they would say they didn't do it. So, it was an integrity issue so many times. Really, uh, I, I found over the years and, and really showed in our field and the work we were doing inside of companies, but that uh, the the work ethic and the individual ethics in people from the time in the 70s, after I took over West Coast, we had like a thousand over a thousand employees. Uh, wow. You saw the, the, uh, the work ethic uh, in the workplace just deteriorate. And we had internal theft and pilferage problems in companies that went nationally. It was a few million dollars a year. Then it went to hundreds of millions. And then it went to billions a year that was being lost in the workplace because of unethical employees or for theft, stealing drugs. So you saw that disintegration in the States. I didn't see that. Well, I, I wasn't working at that level in other right. countries, but I never had that issue in other countries. You mentioned that uh, you were trying to, um, you had this West Coast detectives, and 
it, it seemed like you had, I had, I think I pieced this together as I was reading it. You had, um, a steady business with corporate clients. Um, and I was able to piece that together with, uh, some comments you made. And at, at the same time, you were trying to build an intelligence capability that was worldwide that I, my understanding was that didn't exist when you took the company over. Is that right? That's, you built that's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. The, the primary business, our, we were a corporate investigation agency. When I took it over, we had a lot of security guards in that time, uniform security. And I ultimately phased out of that, but, uh, we were an investigation agency of corporate, but we had we had a lot of consumer clients. We would do, I have still took in a small case. If it was somebody that had a problem, it was just as important to them if it was a $500 problem as it was to a million dollar problem to a big client. So mm -hmm. we would take those, but our uh, volume of clients was in the corporate field. Uh, we did a lot of government work, uh, special things, special type of stuff. But the big thing was corporations, undercover investigations, and that drove the agency. So when I started yeah. the international division, I, um, I, 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 was about, I was in front of my time uh, because uh, terrorism wasn't a big thing in the States at that time. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to build it into where I, the, the idea of building intelligence, an old police chief told me in, out in Buena Park when I started in, uh, in the private sector, came out of law enforcement, he said, Phil, build your intelligence files because it might be 10 years, 15 or 20, but they'll make you a lot of money. So uh, that's what I, I really knew the importance of building intelligence and having that information, even if you didn't have to use it then. But of course, that takes money. And the idea is that the private sector is to have a, a, a base, uh, a revenue base for that. So that's what I was working on building. Wow. What kind of, uh, can you can you describe some of the corporate work that you were doing, the the investigations that you were working on anything well, in the imagination it, it we've done it started uh, sometimes the phone call would start with a company wanting to buy another company so uh they wanted to do diligence package to determine who was the company what was not known about them and sometimes were public companies uh mm -hmm. so we would do a complete workup uh, sometimes it would be a uh they were hiring a president or uh, a high executive. We would do a dossier on them from the time they were born until that date. Uh, sometimes it would be a company that was one to open overseas. And that's why I, I developed and wanted to develop the bases in other countries. They might say, well, I, I, I want to set up in, uh, in uh, France or Germany or even in, uh, we had, uh, in, in uh, Eastern Europe. We had uh, Lithuania and other places. So we would then do a whole due diligence package on that country, including the politics, where should they go? What was the safety issues? Was there a threat to Americans in those particular countries? And where should their employees live if they go there? All those. So they had a complete package. So what I was doing, I wasn't really looking for it, but in the intelligence we gathered, we got all kinds of the stuff that the intelligence agencies would die for. It was just given to us because we were private. Um, they weren't committing treason. To give it to us so they would just tell us uh, all about what uh the leaders were thinking where they were going what the next two or three years might be because we wanted to know 
was it safe longevity for our clients to invest millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, into those countries. So we did all that. And then the other call uh, we got a lot would be um, for undercover operations. They would say, we just got a tip that there was internal theft or drug op uh, uh, operations going on in our company. So we would go in, uh, set up, uh, get employees hired without anybody knowing it, uh, except the top two or three people. And so that would go on. The best story I have on that is we put an undercover agent in a company in uh, as a as in the mailroom, and he started there. The information that he was given the owner of the company was so valuable to him, they just kept moving him around. He retired 23 years later, still working for us and working for that company as a vice president. That's how important <laughs> that wow. uh, undercover was. That's wow. how valuable it was to somebody because you had really what was going on in your workplace. It wasn't coming from yes people or people saying, oh, everything's great. So we did a lot of that. And we did a lot of backgrounds uh, for companies as well as individuals, very minimal backgrounds up to very intense backgrounds. But the phone would ring and there would be a story on it. One of my favorite ones was we had a, a lady come in our office there in North Hollywood and she was from France and she'd been there 30 years in the States, but she sounded like she ju just got off the boat. And she had this story. She told us that she'd been married to a top general in as young, she was young, he was older, in uh, France. They had two children. And when the children were about four or five, something happened. I didn't really know all that happened, but she had to leave the country. And he, the, the order was leave the country. And she did without the children. And this had been 20 some years. She had not seen the children or been able to communicate with them in any way. And her request was, could you find my children? And within a few hours, even in that time, I contacted our head of uh, operations in, in uh, Paris. And of course, the general was well known. And in a matter of hours, he had tracked down the two kids who were both working for the government at that time. And a week or two later, in my office, she had a phone call with the two kids who were sobbing. Everybody was sobbing on the phone. And a few weeks later, they came to the United States and met with her. Now wow. that I would have done that job for free, mm. you know, but that's the kind of things we would, you just never knew what was going to happen, but we were able to really change people's lives and give them hope and peace in their life. So that's a lot of what we do. Did you ever work pro bono for free? Oh yes. Oh yeah. We did a okay. lot of things, a lot of particularly single moms, that were dealing with uh, issues of a divorce and they just didn't have any money and, yeah. uh, and, and they needed help. But in other situations, we had other situations that we would get referred or somebody would call me and say, Hey, can you help them out? They said, yes, we did that. Wow. Now, are you still working or are you retired? No, 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 we're still, um, I, I was still in, going prior to the, uh, yeah, prior to the pandemic about two years, 2018, I got involved in an operation in Mexico, heading up the security operation for precious metals and ultimately wound up taking it over and then started building it out. And then the pandemic hit. And, and so that just really messed everything up. But uh, and a lot of the stuff we were doing out around the world uh, in other countries got stopped by the pandemic. And those things aren't coming back. 
because they were the kind of situations that were sensitive and the situation in countries. But, you know, a lot of our corporate stuff and private individual stuff, yeah, that's continued on. And so my sons are primarily doing most of that, but I'm, you know, still uh, involved and watching over and, and talking to clients and uh, not quite as physical active as I used to be. But I love, I love that. I love what I, and because it was, so I, I was licensed and ordained to the ministry when I was 20. My mother raised me to be a preacher and I was in the Southern Baptist church, did a lot of evangelistic work. I was a youth minister and a worship leader, or then it was a music director. And, uh, but God really led me out of that. I, uh, everybody thought, oh, he's going into full-time ministry, but God led me into the business world. And with the understanding, it was the thought was, I want you to go to the world, but I want you to go on your own dime. You will support yourself and you will take nothing out of any country you go into. Mm -hmm. And so God opened up ministry all over the world from the foolishness of a private eye. People wanted to hear <laughs> what a private investigator from California had to say. And they all knew about in these countries where you go, they'd all watch the OPI shows. It was amazing. They knew more about them sometimes than I did. And, but that opened doors. So I, I've had, I've been blessed um, all over the world where I've been able to have open doors, both for business and ministry. So it fulfilled both uh, in my life. I really believe that we don't have a secular and a spiritual life. It's supposed to be all one and whatever yeah. we're called to do in life. We, we go about serving and helping people and blessing everybody we can. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that struck me was when I was reading your book, uh, I forget exactly. I think it was when you were doing the uh, investigative work at LAX. And I know that that happened several different times, um, but I think it was right before 9-11. Um, you mentioned that you had a Wednesday night Bible group at your house and you mentioned church and I just thought wow what was your life like because you you throw little things like that in and it sounds like a very normal home where you have a predictable schedule you're going to be there on Wednesdays and you have a time and energy to interact with people at church and build relationships have them over at your house and I forget did you say Sherman Oaks or is well, yeah, it was San yeah, Fernando was, Valley uh, somewhere. Yeah, seven uh, Van Nuys area. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I, I when I first took over West Coast, uh, I was young. I was, and I was in over my head. I didn't know it, <laughs> but there was a lot of work to do. Yeah. But at the same time, um, I was in uh, at a church where um, Joey Dawson also went, which is a renowned world Bible teacher and leader speaker involved in leadership all over the world. And I, so I had George Otis there who got me involved. So uh, I don't know what you remember or not, but they had a program called the Here's Life America back in 1976. It was a campus crusade all across the country, the United States, churches all over. And they had a slogan. It was on billboards all over Los Angeles on bumper stickers. And it just said, I found it. That's all it said. So people said, what do you mean? I found it. The idea was to be able to share with them the gospel message. And so after that, um, we had that in 76. Joey Dawson came to me one morning at church and said, Phil, in her New Zealand accent, I believe God wants you to go to New Zealand and take this program. I said, oh, what? <laughs> I'm this young guy that's just started building a business and I've only taken the business over a few months before. And I sought God and 
she told me, see, God, you hear from him. Don't take it from me. And July of 1977, I was on a first airplane, really, across uh, the ocean, and went to New Zealand and spent three weeks sharing with churches all across, uh, all denominations across uh, New Zealand. And then when I came back, it was, we, we saw that we'd had such an evangelistic outpouring from that Here's Wife America, that I started a school of evangelism at our church, which is still going on today. And it what, ch what church it was, is that again? Osborne Neighborhood Church in San Fernando Valley. Hmm. And it was a church about 500, and it was interdenominational, and it, it was a, just an awesome church. And I, um, but the more I would put in there, the more God would take care of my time in the business. It was amazing. And so for many years, I led that, build it up, and it was a training program built on a program out of a, a Presbyterian church in Florida called the Evangelism Explosion, and you take people out and you train them. You just don't say, oh, go go knock on doors, and it was very effective. So I did that, um, and then I've done you know all kinds of ministry things. Um, yeah, yeah, I traveled a lot, and I was gone sometimes, but normally I wouldn't be gone more than two or three weeks at a time rarely once in a while maybe so there was always somebody to fill in if i was gone but my life was normal my family life my church life uh, involved in ministry and uh, ministering to people but yeah it wasn't like this constant like a guy in the military that was gone so much yeah. you know so it was a good balance wow that to me I, I just kept thinking it sounds like a lot of work and it sounds like it's it's um I mean, if you have steady clients and you have money coming in, maybe it's not pins and needles and you're, and you're confident about being paid. Like how, how were you confident about being paid? Were you ever worried that you're going to do a bunch of work and then not get paid for it and cover well, your expenses? It, everything investigative was retainer. We did nothing without retainer, no matter who it was, no matter how big the company, uh, they, no they how, pay how well I knew them. They pay yeah, up front. We worked on retainers. Yeah. Just like, a uh, you, you take a, um, a budget and say, okay, I think this case might cost this. So we'd take a retainer and then we wouldn't go beyond the retainer before we got that. Uh, we would get another retainer. Now in the security field where I would have maybe 20, 30, 40 people at one company, then we build them. And it was done on a two week basis. And these were reputable, you know, big companies. So I never had any issue. Oh, I, I had, my, my losses were really small. Yeah. We had some along, but yeah, it, uh, by having that cash flow from retainers, you were able to uh, know that, yeah, we're getting things covered. Did you ever investigate your own company <laughs> or were, was that just something you constantly did? Well, yeah, the, the Bible says, know the state of your flocks and herds. Uh, so I would have people that would take a look, but I was out there very involved. I, yeah. even on the ground, when we had a lot of operations around Los Angeles, we had a lot of the electronic, big electronic companies and, and others, uh, television studios uh, we had. And so I would be out around too, but I would have people go in unbeknownst to any of the other employees and just give me a status report. So I knew, yeah. you know, what was going on. And, and I was blessed by having this awesome people that uh, came to us, that we were able to train, able to get our philosophy we were known as a praying detective agency and hey, people didn't have to pray with us. I had a lot of people that didn't, I had a lot of people that weren't, you know, didn't know the Lord, but that was fine. 
as long as they followed our moral code and our code of how we treat people. And we do what we say and when we say it. And that's what I found in our field was the biggest problem. People would come to me and say, I hired this private detective and I give him this big retainer and, and I hardly get a hold of him. Now I can't get a hold of him. I can't get any information. I can't get a report. So um, we yeah. vowed not, never to be like that. Okay. So now, hmm. Were these employees that you were hiring or were they contracted out? These people that you'd send in to do investigations? They they were they were employees, most of them. We had a lot of on call, okay. uh, on call people that for special operations, uh -huh. let's say a strike force or some very um uh, specific kind of situation, then we would have on call uh people. But in those days, most everybody we had were employees. And uh, now it's gone to more. You have a lot of contract people yeah. and you use them when you need them. Uh, yeah. But yeah, they were, they were, you know, part of the West coast family. How, what was your secret to keeping your employees and your contract, uh, your contractors, your vendors? Oh, actually, I don't know what the word is, but, but the people you'd contract out, yeah. uh, the people you would well, con you would hire as a contractor. Uh, how do you keep them happy? So that you, I mean, obviously if you keep them happy and they, they like working for you, then they, you trust them more, I guess, because of well, unhappy well, employees. Yeah. Well, we had a reputation. People knew us in the field and one, we would do backgrounds even on contractors. Um, and one, uh, uh, most of the contractors that were good were working for different people. They would be available to different ones uh, in our field for that specialty that they had. So, yeah. um, you know, people would uh, would uh, we would pay them more, but we took care of them. And we had uh, a lot of those people that said, I wish I could work for you all the time, you know. But, mm -hmm. you know, it was a special type of talent they had for those. Yeah, that's what we did. And we we again, we had a reputation. Um, we were called many times the little FBI. We had a reputation for what we did and we were the best at what we did. And we believed that. And we worked hard to fulfill that. To yeah, uh, My it. pet thing was, I, I'm an action person, but I don't like confrontations. So I never wanted a client to call me and say, your guy screwed up here. <laughs> and oh, I worked yeah. hard not to have that happen. And uh -huh. it rarely ever did. So, yeah, that's what you know kept me driving. I believe it. Let's go back to before 9-11. Let's go back to the the state of the airports in the 90s. You mentioned that uh, the Clinton administration had a different political philosophy of these terrorist activity that were happening in 93, for example, and then later in Africa, the USS Cole. Um, there, those were all Al-Qaeda hits, and you have a whole story of how Al-Qaeda was born um, the Clinton administration viewed those as criminal act, acts, not acts of war. Right. And uh, you, you linked that with a, a dismantling of our intelligence capabilities, um, which I imagine were at their height during the Cold War. Would you say that's fair? Yes, was, there was, was because, okay. yeah, the, the need was, oh, well, the world's safer now. So particularly on the human acts uh, uh, agent, the human part, 
yeah. you know, the, the physical, the human agent. Yeah. That was let go and stopped us, not as much. And when I found out from the inside, when I was involved with the government agency after 9-11, I was amazed. At, the press was right. <laughs> they didn't have much. Hmm. So that was going on. I mean, you know, the big problem with the airport situation was in the States, was different from many other countries in the world. We had so many different people that were supposedly involved with security. We had the FAA. We had the airports. We had airport security, uh, and the uh, and the, uh, the all these factors. And so, when you would, on one of the audits that I did, they had wished they hadn't done it because it was yeah. documented and reports went to everybody. But then it started. Well, that's not my responsibility. FAA is supposed to do that. Yeah. Uh, FAA said no. The airports are supposed to do that. And so there was no uh, cohesiveness. And uh, a lot of that was packing the bu passing the buck. And then the airports, on their security, uh, they were uh, cost conscious. So they would hammer right. their security vendors. Oh, we got to decrease this cost. And so yeah. what would they do? They had to cut corners on backgrounds, on the people they hired. And so that was a, a, a big problem prior to. Uh, yeah, I, I think um, I, I'm trying to think of what it would be like for a, a younger person to read this book. I'm reading it because I remember how the airports were before 9-11. Yes. Um, many of us do. Um, and there were some cool things. I mean, you could go to the gate and see your see everybody off. And there were lots of old pictures I have with my grandpa when I was in the Navy. He comes mm -hmm. right to the gate and waves at me when I get on the plane and yeah. and and stuff. But you you narrate. Uh, for example, being hired by LAX to conduct an in-depth audit that was over several months, and not just once, but you you were hired more than once. And yeah, it, we it, had undercover they, operations there too. Yeah, yeah, they were they were there. There were criminal activity. There was drugs. <laughs> there was all sorts right. of stuff that was like blatant in your face stuff like you talk about people just walking out with a suitcase off the plane like directly off the plane yeah uh, yeah you, the baggage handlers yeah. getting into the baggage area so easily uh that you're you're, you're talk would you mind uh describing what you saw for everyone because because well, that's important context for 9 11 because people don't realize just how lax the uh and it was a systemic issue because of the cost issue, the the competition yeah. between the airlines to reduce fees and stuff. It was a race to the bottom for fees, but then that was kind of a disaster for security. Yeah, it, it was a, a, a the lack of security because the the people uh, in charge really didn't understand the importance of it, and there there wasn't. I found in any place I've got into, if the man at the top, which a president or head of an airport, if they have a strong security conscious and awareness and they communicate that down, then you have a whole different environment in your workplace. Yeah. And at the airports, we had uh, all this uh, breakup I'm talking about, no, no uh, cohesiveness. So we had the airport uh, or, or the, the vendor, the security vendors uh, doing their own thing. Uh, hiring as least as they could, uh, giving a a um, a band aid to security because the employees knew that there wasn't things in place to catch them. 
Yeah. Uh, they had these dark holes they could go into. And they knew that there the was ca- such the a cameras weren't even working. You said there was like yeah. the cameras were just for show. They weren't even working. <laughs> yeah. And there were places that there wasn't any just because. Uh, and even though there had been recommendations, I'm sure there had been other recommendations besides ours that had been done over the years. And uh, so um, th- they they would do these things and it would not bring about any results. What happened yeah. with this last big audit we did just about a year before um, uh, 9-11, um, this thing was, I don't know, 150 page report or whatever it was. That was the it one was that huge. was leaked, that was leaked to the media. Yeah. yeah. And uh, every, everyone was confidential stamped by a number and who it was given to. And so we had, you know, all that. Yeah. Uh, and then they, they, like I said, they were wishing that they had the, uh, started that, uh, that audit because now it was on paper. It was published, but yeah. they did nothing with it. And uh, so that year later or so, what it was, I got this call from a reporter saying, Oh, would you like to comment on your, uh, what, what do you mean? I denied it at first. I said, no way. We didn't do any audit there. What do you mean? <laughs> and he said, well, he started reading me on your name. So, uh, well, okay. I'm not, no comment. Uh, I don't know somebody out there from the airport leaked it for whatever reason. And, but even then, even after the fact, uh, as an example, tight, what they did initially after 9-11 was tighten up supposedly uh, the uh, getting on and in the airport, getting through the gate, getting right. to the gate. So they had more visible people. They had some x-rays and all that, but you could drive around to the back gate of the airport and and come in pretty easily without yeah. any restrictions. There was ways to get on the ramp, get into the the, the airport, and then the baggage control people were still uh, not, not monitored. It wasn't yeah. controlled. So it was all for public consumption. Yeah. And it was so, again, um, a mismatch. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm a private sector guy. I'm not a Hey, I don't like government doing stuff any more than necessary, what they need to do. But in this sense, I told them at the time, they needed a um, security force that was professional, that was uniform at all airports, that had some kind of probably uh, federal control. But mm-hmm. it wasn't left up to the airport or to the airlines uh, mm-hmm. to do security. Now. They've tried to do that with the TSA, but that's become a boondoggle like everything else the government tries to do. But that was the, you know, the, the things that I found. They just didn't fix the problems when, yeah. when you told them about. Them. Well, that makes sense from a from just a human incentive perspective, because if the if the market is what is supplying the incentive for security, it's only when people die and really horrifically and publicly and enough people are afraid that you can profit from investing in security and and letting people know about and even then just the very nature of security is a lot of it is secret so you can't be public about it i mean if it's effective uh, there's right. always there's always a tendency to to window dress something for the public so that they think they're getting value of it but that might not be what actually has value and well, that's uh, right so i see what you're saying yeah well, I mentioned in the book too about what happened in uh, France uh, and in Europe. Of course, that was that was a, a. I mean, they were going wild all across Germany and France and Italy and uh, IRA. Yeah. And, but yeah. it took in Paris 
because they they started those appeasements. They let terrorists out. They said it was kind of like, don't operate on French soil, but we'll let you out. But one day in Paris at 86, they had 12 terrorist attacks in Paris in one day. And that was the turning point. They overdid it. The public Mm. just said, that's enough. And so they rose up and then France, you know, set up a a really vigilant uh, counterterrorism and started started crashing down on them. But it took that all those disasters and people's lives lost to get finally the uprising that stopped these uh, politicians who were. Yeah, I I don't get them. I just don't understand these Mm -hmm. kind of people with their leftist viewpoints and and appeasement. That doesn't work. Not yeah. with terrorists, it doesn't work. That's for sure. Right. Or any any type of crime. It's a really. fundamental misunderstanding of human nature, I think, is that it's you like, can you can somehow manipulate people by looking like you're sorry for things that are not really your fault, but uh, apologizing like, for, I don't know, colonialism or something like that. Uh, they're not your individual fault, right? And so your apology, I think an apology only is effective is if you're apologizing for something that you did like you individually, right? because you're the one issuing the apology. Yeah. I I don't under, I don't understand that kind of naivete either. Um, But I don't remember, I wasn't old enough to remember the 1986 things in the, in your book, you, you, which was before all the things that happened in Paris or in France in 2015, Quite a few things happened in 2015. This is before that. And in your book, you seem to almost predict that France is going to have yes. more problems. Yes. Because they were there getting was, locks. All we had to do was was look and remember that the terrorists are patient. They will wait, work, deceive, while we are and in and, and the West, particularly what we do. We have a, and that would happen when the terrorist attack occurred in Europe. The phones would ring off the hook mm-hmm. for about three, four weeks. Yeah. And then it's over if they forgot about it. So while the terrorists right. across the world are, are day by day building, getting ready for that next hit, all they need is one big one. Right. And we are sitting back saying, oh, things are great. Nothing's going on. And I had companies tell me this so much. Well, we don't really have a problem. Why, why do we need all that security stuff in? Right. And then they would have a major problem. So that's that's what happens is right. we get complacent and we saw it coming. We saw the purpose behind it. And I had hundreds of meetings in like one year and a half prior to the Olympics. I had over 500 meetings. I mean, lunches, dinners and sometimes I thought I was a politician running for office, except I'd never make that. <laughs> uh, but I just went everywhere talking about the dangers of terrorism. But I didn't want to leave people with a uh, violent feel. Oh, it's hopeless, hopeless. Right. My goal was share enough about the problem, then tell them what they could do, mm-hmm. how we could have hope and what one person to do. And if one starts and we then become a, 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 a an army of ones, we yeah. can turn around the tide. So that was my goal with, with uh, talking about terrorism and violence. And you know, I got a lot of response. I wish I had that going on because then people were coming up to me said, Phil, we want to get involved with you. How, how can we help you? And we give you money. Can we? I had no organization. It was, I was a businessman, you know, I, but yeah. I thought now if I, if I had that, Hey, we have a podcast going, we'd have a, a, a organization yeah. going and we would, right. we would mobilize people like some, and several have done that, which is, which is awesome. So 
in the in the wake of 9-11 of course we had the 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 patriot act and uh there was a lot of um initially there was a lot of agreement about how to proceed across yes. partisan lines and that agreement began to break down uh, the the libertarians always seem to be uh, hypercritical of the Patriot Act and and the TSA and everything like that. Y you're not like exactly filled with praise all the way down about all that stuff either, but you are very clear that the patriotic patriot Patriot Act was was necessary, and uh, even its reauthorization was necessary. Uh, how do you feel about it now? Do you? have you changed your mind about that? And, and especially in the, in the light of like the J six stuff, I've heard that some of the, it's hard to know exactly what's happening with, with those defendants, but I've heard that I've heard stories of abuse and I've heard stories of going too far using the, the, the war power against our own citizens. And I'm not sure if you have any comment about that or if you have any concerns about that. Uh, yes, major. Uh, obviously, like you said at the beginning, there was a there was a a, 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 a the patient was seriously ill, and you needed to have serious uh, um, uh, procedures to help the patient, mm -hmm. and that's what the Patriot Act started out. And, and part of the problem here in the United States before that, like the FBI, the CIA, and police agencies, there was no communication like there should have been. There yep. was too much turf war, so that did help with that, even though there's still some of that. But now what has happened with the politicalization of our I, – I mean, I am uh, – you know, the FBI was the premier agency in the world. It's not anymore. Hmm. Uh, for what it is – and that's not because of the men and women down in the ranks – it's because of those political appointees at the top. And wow. uh, and now the misuse of that power of what they're using in uh, I, I'm 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 saying uh, and I think I know some Jim Jordan and others are talking about, hey, we scrap it and we get something that really works, that that can't be misused by that has enough controls that the party in power, no matter who it is, can't use it to their own end. And we're in danger. We're in real danger here. And the public needs to wake up because we think it will never happen here, what we've seen in other countries of totalitarian rule and takeover. But if we let our freedoms keep being um, taken away from us and not saying anything, um, and and we're in real trouble. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff from the J stick stuff that I catch every now and then I, I, and I haven't done the workup on this that I want to do. I'm listening to the lawfare podcast and I started at the beginning and I'm working my way all, th all the way through that podcast. And I know they cover quite a bit of, of the J six stuff, but they come from a leftist kind of a bent. And, uh, that's why I'm listening to it. Cause I want to hear what they're saying. They were, <clears throat> In the in 2013, you know, they were talking about drones a lot. They were talking about the war on terror, Guantanamo, all this, all that stuff. And uh, recently, they're talking about the J6 stuff. But my 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 concern is the issue of evidence that's being hidden. Um, I've I've never heard of 
of that kind of problem with American citizens before where they can't get the evidence they need to uh, or a speedy trial, for example, these basic rights uh, discovery. And I worry that uh, there's, there's been some line crossed maybe with the American people. Like I, what I mean is, I wonder because I'm a I'm an educator and I see what the classroom is like and I'm not really you know all that old or anything I have you know about two decades of experience in the classroom and I've been very disturbed by what I've seen on the college campuses and I'm very disturbed by people who I know spend a lot of time on the college campuses and what kind of people they're becoming and I just know that there's a lot of sloppy thinking. There's a lot of non-thinking. There's very short attention spans. That's made worse by social media. And the uh, the lockdowns and the response to the public health panic and stuff in the last few years, I've worried about government overreach in that area and, and, and the reaction of people, what that's done to people's mental health. I'm just wondering the kind of people we are are we able to govern ourselves are do do we have do you have the same belief in the ordinary person like ronald reagan did like he believed that you, you just tell them the facts they'll make the right decision do you, do you are you confident like like you used to be in the american people? well i i had that confidence like ronald reagan too I, the highlight was when i debated the aclu leadership there in los angeles yeah and um uh 95 percent of the uh, membership that was there. There was, I don't know, two, 300 people there. And um, was this in the uh, 80s? Me. You're talking yeah. about in the 80s? Yeah. Yeah. And they saw what uh, they, I didn't come as a anything to political party. Right. Right. And right. I just presented the facts. And I believe, as I said many times, you give the American people the facts and then they will, they were going to make the right decision. That's all changed. Mm -hmm. I don't, I see now. Uh, and so many people are so, um, uh, uh, brainwashed, I guess to call it, by their political party or yeah. by wanting uh, something for nothing. Yes, and uh, and thinking that um that this free stuff is just going to come to them, and they don't think for themselves. They think whatever their party says, they do, mm -hmm. and uh, we're in danger. And this is what has happened when I've done some extensive studies on countries I was in out around the world who were who were free and then became totalitarian or dictator type rule. Yeah. And all of them followed the same pattern. And but if people would only they won't take the time to find out. You could find that stuff out now real easy on the internet of of what's going on. But we've gotten complacent, we've gotten lazy, uh, yeah. we've just gotten uh we believe whatever we're told. And I my message would be to an American citizen, forget your party. Do decide. Republican, Democrat, Independent. What does the candidate uh, say and what is their position that is true to the Constitution, to godly principles, to moral um, applications of everything to do with what God says? And vote for that candidate, even if they're on the other party. If but if if you're if your candidate doesn't have that if they're on the other side, so but we won't do that. 
And we just got to blatantly follow, blindly follow uh, what has been in our families. Like um, uh, one black uh, leader was talking recently about the black population. He said, that's why what is happening. All they know, how they've been trained in their families is you vote Democratic, you vote Democratic. And it's just like habit. Yeah. And and they just keep doing it. It's very common. Yeah. What when you uh if someone listening to this was interested in in working in your line of work or even for your company, what kind of training or what kind of person would you suggest they work on becoming or having? What kind of training would you suggest they try to have to to do the work you were doing and to do it well? Well, general private investigative work, uh, they have their specialties in you know, homicide, arson. You know, we have those kind of things, electronic or computer. But the basic investigator who's doing background investigative surveillance, you know, the basic stuff. Uh, I've always said that, um, um, you know, 50 percent is uh, common sense and the other 50 percent is experience. Now, mm-hmm. uh, having uh, criminal justice courses, understanding law, those are good. Uh, getting information um, in, in from a from a general criminal um, uh, background is good. Um, in the private sector, it, it, you don't have you're not doing a lot of criminal work, uh, and there are not a lot of places uh, in in the '90s, uh, late '80s, '90s, and the uh, early 2000s. We had a training academy in Los Angeles that we trained investigators, and uh, we had a good track record. Everybody we that were willing to be replaced got hired. Hmm. But I don't know of anyone doing that right now uh, around. But yeah, um, uh, just develop your common sense. You, if you if you're personable, be if you like people and people like you, then that's a that's a big plus because you can talk to people and they'll tell you things. I found out many times going through the front door. Uh, I had people tell me when I became a private investigator, they said, oh, how can you do that? You're spying on people. You're telling lies. You you know, how can a Christian be a private? I said, well, hey, God sent out the first spies. And you just don't have to tell a lie or you don't have to go through the back door and break in. You go to the front door and knock on the door. And so many times we would do that. And you'd, people wouldn't want to talk, but you'd stand there and, you know, be nice and friendly and talk. And suddenly they would start telling you stuff you wanted to know. So having those traits in your life is good. And um, it, it's hard to find any place you can start and be an intern at. You know, in our field, it's not big enough or broad enough to where um, occasionally you might find that. But, yeah. um, you know, yeah. do those kind of things. And uh, if you have a passion, if you like it and love it, and I've had, we had awesome women investigators working for us. And I have, I would go in places and these women would say, oh, I, I know I would be a great private investigator. I, I just love it. Well, women are much better in some ways than men because they're intuitive and their instincts, uh, if they really like that kind of work. So if you love it, pursue it, find a way and, uh, you'll make it. Hmm. The, the part where you were at the nightclub with Renee, the Iranian, uh, agent, the terrorist organizer. And she had given you her number or something like that, or you guys were exchanging yeah. numbers and the, the, yeah. uh, you had to make a choice of whether to follow up with this the next day or two and continue it. And I remember in the book, you say that you were worried that 
she was smarter than you and she was going to get you information. It was going to be the other way around. She was going to be use getting information from you instead of you getting information from her. That's, that's what you mean by common sense, right? Like just, uh, yeah, just, yeah. You know, don't, and then you, don't, you, if you're you a guy, stopped that, you stopped at that moment where, yeah. yeah. If you're a guy, don't let the pretty face get you too much. Um, yeah. And two, I think part of the interest was she thought I was an investor, uh, a big time. Investor, yeah, that's right. And she was looking for money on yeah, stuff. That's too. right. That's right. So yeah. Trying to con somebody. And I mean, she was seductive. So you don't have whatever. You don't have any information or any uh, comments about China. I don't think in your book, do you have any thoughts about China? Well, I've been to China. Oh, and I, I actually yeah. did investigative work in China back in, in the 80s. Um, oh, is that right? Oh. Uh, you, had, you had to have a, 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 a Chinese attorney with you. But yeah, it was possible to do. Hmm. Um, I had an office in Hong Kong, and I spent a lot of time over there. Um, hmm. Obviously, um, it's very obvious that China is probably at its um, most dangerous positions, even uh, from the from the start of Mao and the Chinese uprising uh, revolution, now it has positioned itself, and we've allowed it. And we've just been sitting on the back uh, some uh, a lot that militarily, and what they have accomplished and have in place, and with the leader's philosophy uh, of control. Yeah. And I I I'm a firm believer. If you read the Bible and believe it all in the Bible. Uh, and I tell people, if you don't believe, you know, read Revelations and see a little bit. You get an idea of what's going to happen. Well, I believe with what's going on in the world, what has happened, what the events that we see right now with violence, with uh, uh, suppressing people's rights mm -hmm. and trying to get people to, to believe only what um, you tell uh, the, the leaders tell you, and you can't have your own opinion. Uh, as if with uh, the COVID thing and vaccines and all that, that's happening all over the world. It's just not in the United yeah. States. Right. There is something different going on this time. Mm. It's not Hitler. Yeah. And people say, oh, we've had all this disasters, uh, uh, violent stuff, uh, you know, right. the whole history. Well, it has been. This time it's different. Read the read the uh, the warnings, uh, the, the, the signs of the times. And so I believe that I would not be surprised if China moves sooner than later into Taiwan. Uh, they've been emboldened from my still reaches into intelligence and things that they've been emboldened by our current administration. They know he won't act. Um, oh, right. uh, they've got enough on him that he won't. Uh, now, with with the world being so focused on uh, on Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, he they're, they're, the timing is something here. Right. And I think he's he's determining if somebody like Trump or somebody really powerful gets in uh, the next election, his window will close again. Yeah. So I would not be surprised if we see a movement before uh, the next election. And you see things happening there now. It's escalating all the time. They're pressing the envelope. Um yeah. We're recording this on, where I'm just going to say the date it's June 21st, 2023. So yeah. you're, you're saying that before the next election will be the 24 election. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that it, it, the way things are shaping, unless 
something big happens to to stop their uh, ambition. But um, the biggest issue we have, the biggest danger we have, is from China. Yeah, you know, you know, not not I, even though Russia, we know that's be the bad, but that's the uh, the country I've been watching the closest for the last twenty five years or so. Um, in fact, when I was a uh, Nick Nicolette's age, your daughter, when she was in my logic and practice uh, course at, at Pierce, I think it was fall of 2009. Um, I, when I was her age and I was uh, going through school, I had a big poster of, of a map that the people's Republic of China of the people's Republic of China from the people's Republic of China's point of view, it's in characters, it's in Chinese characters and when you look at that map, it's a physical map. It's before the internet. <laughs> um, they, it's it's shocking. It be, it's shocking to people if they look carefully at it because they draw the international boundary outside of Taiwan. Which I, that's not surprising. But what's shocking is how they look at Korea. They have Korea. The whole Korean peninsula is just called Korea. And the capital's Pyongyang. That's how they see it. And this this is a map that was in the '90s. I mean, this is this is uh this is how they saw the wor world, and that's that's pretty scary. Like the our one of our major trading partners doesn't even doesn't even see South Korea as a, a different country, and that's how they look at Taiwan. Are you disturbed at what's happened in in Hong Kong the last few years? Oh, that was, you know, devastating because it was interesting. The man that I connected with that ran my uh, office in Hong Kong, uh, excuse me, he had defected from the Chinese uh, Red Army hmm. and then wound up going to Scotland Yard and he became one of the heads of the Hong Kong police. And wow. so when he retired, that was, you know, when he, I was working with him, we were working together. That was before, you know, we're still right. strong. And, yeah. and so many people fled the country. Now, he stayed was able to survive okay but oh yeah that was hong kong was such uh i before i went to the first time i said i don't want to go what i don't want to go to hong kong i'll go to paris you know forget hong kong but i went to hong kong and mm -hmm. i fell in love with the place there was such a blend of europe and and the far east the people were fabulous and mm -hmm. um yeah it was very very disheartened to see you know what happened and you know inter international policy and um you know i don't get some of the things that that they do why they do them but anyway yeah it was, it, it, i wish it had been different yeah that map that i was referring to they had their international boundary drawn around the south china sea the entire sea right. that's how they saw that back in the 90s and they were not able to right. enforce it but ever since they've ever since then they've been doing things to try to and you're right. Our distractions have been on the war on terror. Now, it's hard to, I mean, we all have a limited attention span. It's not like we can be doing everything at once. But um, now with the Ukraine, I do worry about a divided attention span, which which some people might think of as an opportunity to do to expand their power in China. That's, you know, it's, it's a big worry of mine. I'm glad to hear that it's on your radar. Um, what do you, uh, what would, let me go back to your, uh, briefly to your childhood. What was your childhood like? 
how did you become the person you are? Did you grow up in a rural area? Did you learn how to yeah. fish and hunt and shoot and all that stuff? Oh, yeah. I, I grew up on a farm. I was born on a farmhouse in northern Missouri, uh, Ravana, out just about, oh, 30 miles, 40 miles south of the Iowa line. And uh, on the old outlaw trail where Jesse and Frank James used to ride down, my uh, my grandmother uh, used to tell the story that she and her sister would be walking to town. They were 12, 13. And Jesse and Frank would be coming back from north, robbing a bank in Iowa. They would stop and pick him up and take him into town. And so I grew up in that. My uh, grandfather was had general stores and property and farms. We uh, well had farms. And so he was kept the whole area alive during uh, the depression, but uh, until he couldn't anymore, he just, mm. you know, fed everybody. Uh, and so I grew up in that farm. And then my dad, when I was about six, uh, we left the farm and he got, he took over a Southern Baptist church camp down in uh, Chillicothe, Missouri, about the center of the state. And so, but my parents, I, I was in church when I was, when I was born and thereafter, I received the Lord when I was seven uh, at a radio, listened to a radio that I, I told my mother I, I want to receive. I was baptized. I, I was in church, praying parents, godly. I never, ever heard my father raise his voice to my mother. I never heard them argue in my whole life. I'm sure in private they did their thing, but they were godly. My parents were godly saints of people. So I was raised with praying uh, believing who God is and uh, not looking on on color. Uh, even though I was in Missouri near the Mason-Dixon yeah. line, hey, it was, uh, you know, I was raised, you know, God doesn't look on color. And then I, after high school, when they still had the draft, so I went into the military. But it was that godly uh, upbringing the, and, and the discipline of farming and living in that, you had to work. I yeah. was working when I was a kid and I, I, I thank God for that. And, uh, I, I wish, even though I got two great sons, I said, wow, it would be great to have a lot more kids grow up on the farm life and get those disciplines in your life. And then, then of course I went in the military because I figured I would get drafted if I didn't. So I went in the air force. Yeah. So that was the basis of, uh, the set the tone for my life. And, taught me to pray, to seek God. And I wished in those early days, I would have heard his voice a lot clearer. Um, I didn't know his voice like I got to know it when I realized the Holy Spirit in me and who I was. But it was a good foundation. And I never strayed from it. You know, I I knew my parents had great uh, desires for me. It wasn't like I was really fearful. And it's kind of like the fear I have of God, I guess. Uh, I never smoked. I never even tried it. Drinking, I never did. I tasted a beer one time, I think, and oh, I don't like that. And even though I had it going all around me, I wasn't attracted to it because I knew my parents had raised me and had a different standard for me. And then it was more about my parents, I think, than it was really about God. And then as I got older, I realized that God had a standard for my life. And I realized in life, I had been doing some things that if Jesus would have come and said, come up here, I would have been embarrassed. So I decided this in the last years, I needed to work more on what I'm doing, how I'm doing it and being prepared at any time to meet my God and uh, to take people with me and not wow. just uh, live a life that is about all I can get and 
supporting my family and all those things are important, but it's not the most important. You know, we do God first and he takes care of the rest. When you got to Los Angeles, did you notice any difference in the values of LA versus the values of the place you grew up? Because you well, raised a family there, in LA, right? You raised yeah, a family in 1960. I, I, I got out of the Air Force in, um, well, no, 60. Yeah. Well, I, I went to the Air Force. I wound up in the Air Force there in 1960 up in Victorville. And I moved down to Los Angeles. I, I stayed in Victorville after I got out. And then in 1972, moved down to Los Angeles. It was a total different environment, of course, than it is now. Wow, wow. But yeah, it didn't have uh, the thing about growing up on where I did. We didn't lock doors. You didn't have, uh, yeah, you know, your neighbors were quite a ways away, but you didn't, there wasn't the stress. There wasn't the concern. We didn't have the crime. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, there were kids drinking and crowding around, I guess, at school. I, I never... I never really participated in that. Didn't really realize how much of it was going on. It was totally different. And then gradually, of course, in LA, uh, by the time my boys were in their teens, yeah, we had a whole lot more things, even with church kids, that we were dealing with because of all the environment of marijuana coming on and all these things. So yeah, it changed a lot. Yeah, I bet. And and it's even more different today, Phil. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I yeah. I mean, I'm not even an expert in LA, but I know enough where I, I mean, I worked there for a long time and just, just on the college campuses. I mean, the corruption you mentioned at the, uh, airports remind me of the college campuses. There's just so much that's wrong on the college campuses. I don't understand why people put up with it. Hmm. I guess everybody yeah. feels like they need a college education, but, but then when you're not getting an education, What's the point? I mean, I, I just don't understand it, Phil. And we're paying yeah, for it with taxpayer money. Well, that's right. And the, the thing we don't see, when you look, what is behind all this? It's not just a few people that decide, oh, I'm going to try to sway people to my political belief. This is an agenda. And it's the same. It's been used in the past. Hitler used the same thing. Uh, you, you, you take the minds of the young people and the only way you, uh, and it's been said by communists and others in past years, the only way we would take over America would be take their guns and take the minds of the young people and set them in a different tone. So when they come up, you realize what could happen in the next generation coming up with what we're coming out of our schools and with the mind bent that they have. And this is not just, a small issue. And this is not just happening in America. It's happening all over the world. And there's an agenda that goes beyond. And it's not a conspiracy theory. No. It's a fact. And we have, I've seen them and I've experienced them, but, and it's now more has happened in the last two years uh, uh, to take us down this road that I'd say happened in the last maybe 50 years. It, it, it's gone that far down so fast with this administration and what's happened when you look at all that's been done. So we better wake up. It does feel like a spiritual darkness. And I, I, I feel like it's, it's not a conspiracy theory because not because conspiracy theories are not true. Sometimes they are, right. there are conspiracies, but the, the, it, you can't describe it merely in human terms. There, there seems to be, 
something with a long attention span that feels it just feels spiritual to me and, and and people they just feel like they have a low attention span we don't see it we don't pay attention you can be trained to see it and, and to really pay attention you can be trained but it, it, that requires discipline it almost requires that farm mentality of the farmer like how you grew up you have to think way ahead it's not a short-term thinking thing. Farming is not a short-term thing. You're you're sowing the seeds, you're nurturing that thing. You got to deal with the weather. You got to deal with pestilence, disease, insects. Just read Laura Ingalls Wilder, <laughs> you know, all those books, <laughs> yeah. all the stuff yeah. they dealt with. And uh, you know, I just don't see that kind of. I don't see any thinking with the kids, and that that's what bothers me. It, it's really disturbing to me. That's right. So that's right. But, but you, you have hope. And, and I think that comes right. through in this interview uh, that, that you have some kind of, is it just, is it just the, the pills you take or is it something you <laughs> eat for breakfast? By the way, what time do you get up and what do you have for breakfast? Are you in a morning person? Well, I used to be. I used to be up at five o'clock every morning. Uh, just, I don't know. I did that Naturally. for years. Yeah. And I would do my studying early. I would, because uh, I spent time with the word and studying and listening to the Lord. Uh, but now, yeah, sometimes maybe seven. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, but uh, I don't eat big breakfasts unless it's go out or on a holiday or something, maybe. Do you have Usually coffee? I have fruit. Yeah, coffee, fruit. And, um, and sometimes a croissant or something like that, more of a continental type, uh, you know, to have a occasionally maybe on a Sunday I, uh, morning, I might, or after church, come back, I might fix a, you know, a, a bacon and egg breakfast, yeah. but you know, okay. not more, more. Uh, I, I mean, I had cancer back in 92, colon cancer, and it kind of changed my life. Best thing that ever happened to me. And, uh, <laughs> so I changed my diet to a lot more fruits, vegetables, and salads and tried to eat healthier, even though I still have red meat occasionally, but, um, I'm, um, healthy and great. And, and, um, yeah, I try to try to eat healthy if I can. So your, your, your hope at, for America, I mean, it seems like you're a hopeful person. What do you have? What's the basis of your hope? Well, the basis of my hope is I know the end of the story and I know where we're going to wind up number one i know who's going to win the battle and that's god so in that time i believe and it will depend if we elect the right person in the next election uh we could turn things around and i believe god would give time i believe we could push back on this this curtain and uh, of of violence and evil and and moral decay and and the transgenderism and sex stuff that that is for the pit of hell. I, I believe we could push it. God is so patient. He is so loving and kind. It's amazing how he let his children in the past, when they would repent and come back to him, he would say, okay, you got more time. I've got plenty of time. Uh, his time is so different than us. So I believe if we do that, but it's going to take uh, an uprising of people in the states to come back to say we're willing to stand up and fight too many times people that are in the church or people that have spiritual they oh no we're not supposed to be involved 
You know, the Bible, no, and it's what's so interesting. Uh, the leftists and all these people say, oh, the Constitution says separating church and state. It's not in the Constitution, nowhere about separation of church and state. It's right. something Jefferson said in, in, in a writing to people. And so they take all this stuff out of context, but we're following for it. So if we wake up, the church, behold, not one total uh, denomination, whatever they are, if they'll wake up and say, we're going to stand up and we're going to fight back. I had this real vivid um, uh, experience recently. I was preparing. I was doing some preaching down in Mexico when I was down there. I was kind of pastoring an English-speaking service at a Spanish church. And I was preparing for a message. And I just read Jeremiah 1.5. Wasn't really thinking about it. And when it said, I knew you before I was in, you were in the womb. I knew you. I gave you a name. I gave you a purpose before you were in the womb. And that hit me like I'd read that many times. And it just hit me. And I started weeping. Like, and I'm not necessarily a weeper, probably more emotional than I used to be. And it's, <laughs> I just looked up and it's like heaven open. And I saw this figure of, of heaven. It's just vision or whatever you want to call it. And, and I looked and I saw angels with head, swords drawn saying, God, let us go save your babies. And I saw that head shake. And he said, no, it's not my time yet. I'm waiting for my church to rise up and push it back. I tell you, wow. that affected me so dramatically. And I realized that we, as a, God gives his people here work to do, and he gives us a lot of time to do it. Hmm. And if we won't, then ultimately he'll say enough. I'm coming. Yeah. I'll take care of it. Wow. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. But I'm also a realist, you know, but whatever. Yeah. I know that I'm going to be taken care of. God's in control. That's a great note to end on. I want to plug your book again. The, the book again is Hostile Intent. Protecting Yourself from Terrorism is the subtitle. And the author is that we've been speaking to is Phil Little. And uh, I he's the father of one of my former students. And that's how I got on. He got on my radar. And uh, I appreciate, by the way, Phil, that when you gave me this book, when you came to Pepperdine to talk to my class, you inscribed it with a date. Thank you. And a little note and uh, a nice uh, signature. So it wasn't just your signature. So many authors, they just put their signature on it, but they don't put the date and they don't put a little note. And you said, Lucas, this is my search to find some answers about terrorism. I hope that you enjoy the read. Be safe. Phil Little. And I have to tell you, I did enjoy the book a lot. It's very well written and it hangs together nicely and you can read it. It's nice bedtime reading actually. So that's what I've been doing. So thank you well, so I need much. To, I'll give a plug to uh, uh, Albert uh, Pareto, who was the, he was yes, working yeah. for me and he was a editor and yeah. he did a lot of editing on that. And it was really great to have that help in house. Okay. Yeah, Albert Parada, uh, thank you very much for that. your part in the book, too. So thanks uh, for coming on uh, the podcast, Phil, to reconnect. I really enjoyed it. I I have, too. In fact, I'm working on moving into a podcast. So people have been telling me to do it. And I tell, I can't do that. But hey, That's I'm wonderful. I'm moving there. Well, you got yeah. the right microphone and you got the earphones and all that stuff. And you've been on TV before, right? You, you've been oh, on TV I've... lots. 
Yeah, I've done a hundred plus shows. I hosted a radio and television show in Los Angeles. Yeah. That's right. You did. Okay. So it says you appear on NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox. I've heard of those. Yeah. And uh, you you were the host of Crime Line in a uh, talk, radio talk show in Los Angeles. How long did that go on right. for? For about two years. I had that about two years. What station yeah. was that it was, on? Um, yeah. 870. It was. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, what Dennis um, Prager's on. Yes. And uh, it was it was great. It was, uh, my son uh, was the engineer on it, which helped. But uh, oh, I, wow. I was a novice to that, you know. And uh, but it was, you know, it was a call in talk show. So we had people call in and then I would have guests on. So that was it was fun. It was good. It was a good. Learning. You have so much to bring to the podcast world. I really look forward to it. When you get that up and running, let me know and we'll we'll plug right. it. Yeah. OK, I'll do that because. We got it started, so we'll, we'll let you know. Thank you. It was great seeing you again, and it was great being here. So, but thank you so much for the opportunity. You bet.